In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. Christos Anesti. Our Bible study tonight, Psalm 95. This Psalm is without a title in the Hebrew version, but it is attributed to David by the Septuagint translation which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. And also St. Paul, when he made quotation from this psalm in letter to Hebrew, chapter 4 from verse 3 to 7, he attributed this psalm to David. So the author of this psalm is David. However, many scholars believe that St. Paul followed the common opinion in quoting any psalm as Psalm of David. So, until now actually, when we read any psalm, we say from psalms of our teacher David, whether he is the one who wrote it or not. Psalm 95 appear in a group of psalms that focus on the reign of God. God is our King. And these are Psalm 93 and from 95 to 99. These Psalms focusing on the reign of God. And this Psalm is intended for liturgical use. They use it in the worship in the temple. These Psalms 93 and from 95 to 99 sometimes are categorized together as enthronement psalms because they focus on God's eternal kingship. Also, it seems highly probable that they were composed for the dedication of the temple. When they consecrate the temple and dedicate it to God, so these psalms were composed and chanted during this time. Psalm 95 is invitation to the people when assembled for public worship to praise God from a sense of his great goodness. So it's invitation to people when we come together to worship God, to worship him and praise him for his great goodness and also to be attentive to the instructions they were about to receive from the reading of the law. So this psalm, again, is invitation to people when they come in public worship, like right now, for two reasons, to praise God for his goodness and also to pay attention to the readings. Psalm 95 is a great study in how to show God our faith in Him, our trust in Him, what to do and what not to do. Saint Athanasius, writing of the practice of the church, he said, Before the beginning of their prayers, Christians invite and exhort one another in the words of this psalm. So even in the New Testament, not only in the Old Testament. Saint Athanasius instructed the people when they gather together in public worship 
to use this psalm to invite and to exhort one another to praise the Lord. This psalm is a short psalm, only 11 verses. Verse 1 and 2, a call to unite in worshiping. Call to all the believers to unite in worshiping. From verse 3 to 8, reasons to worship. Why we gather, why we assemble to worship God. From 9 to 11, it's a warning to those who reject worship. Warning to those who reject worship. So let's start from verse 1. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to him with psalms. So the psalm begins with an invitation and exhortation to praise God. And the word, let us come, which repeated more than one time, the word, let us come, contain exhortation. Also, people are excited to join in heart and lips in praising God. And from this opening, oh, let us come, we find an echo in verse 2 and 6 in this psalm. That's why it's called Invitation Psalm, and St. Athanasius said people should use it to encourage one another to worship. So in verse 1, oh, let us come, sing to the Lord. In verse 2, let us come before his presence. In verse 6, Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. So, let us come was repeated three times, inviting the people to praise the Lord. He invites them first to exalt in spirit and then to express their joy in singing. For singing is of little value unless the mind be previously raised up to God in interior joy and admiration. That's why he said, let us sing to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. But how we sing and how we shout, unless our heart is rejoicing and our mind is ready to praise the Lord. So the psalmist wants to make melody in our heart to the Lord. Singing should be the outpouring of our heart to God, should be an expression of our praise and thanksgiving. If singing is not flowing out from the heart, then we are not worshiping the Lord. As the Lord said about Israel, they worship me by their lips, but their heart is far away from me. And in vain they worship me. It's a vain worship. So if singing is not flowing from the heart, it is a vain worship. It's not worship. And the expression, oh come, it is an invitation to those who are scattered and far away 
maybe not physically far away, but far away in their mind. Their mind is preoccupied with many distractions. So it is, oh, let us come means gather your mind, gather your thought. Don't be distracted. Let us focus on worshiping God. And as it invited the Jews in the Old Testament, so now it invites Christian congregation to join in the worship of God. And in general, loudness of voice was regarded as indication of earnestness of heart. That's why they say, shout to the Lord. St. Augustine commenting on this verse, remarked that the Psalmist invites us to rejoice, not in the world, but in the Lord. Let us sing to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. St. Augustine says, in saying, O come, he means that those who are far off are to draw near. But how can we be far off from him? Because God exists everywhere. Unlikeness to him, we are far off by an evil life, by bad habits. A man standing still in one spot draws near to God by loving him and by loving that which is evil when he loves that which is evil he withdraws himself from God St. Augustine continues and says come as a sick man to a doctor to obtain relief as a scholar to a master to learn wisdom a thirsty man to a fountain as fugitives to a sanctuary, as blind men to the sun. And he said, let us shout to the rock of our salvation, because God is the strong ground of our confidence, the basis of our hope and our security. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us all unite in praising the Lord, giving full expression to our joy by shouting. Let us chant hymns of praise to him because he is our hope and our salvation, the rock of our salvation. St. Jerome in his version, you know St. Jerome translated the Bible from Greek to Latin, from the Septuagint to Latin, and this translation is called Vulgata. So in his version of the psalm, he translates the word as Jesus our rock. Because Jesus means the Savior. So the Savior our rock. So he translated, let us shout joyfully to the Savior our rock. And the Savior is Jesus. Then verse 2. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Let us present ourselves before him in his temple, bringing with us the sacrifice of thanksgiving. Sometimes when we come to the church, we are grumbling, not happy, not in a state of gratitude. We feel that we are forced to come to the church. 
But this should not be the attitude of worshiping God. We should come to his presence with thanksgiving. St. Augustine says, let us make haste to meet him, not waiting till he sends to call us before him in the last day when we are held accountable, that we may offer our thanksgiving with sufficient promptness to avoid the charge of ingratitude in the last day. So to avoid the charge of ingratitude when God tells each one of us give an account of your stewardship, we need to come to him with gratefulness, with thanksgiving. Worship should be done with a conscious sense of God's presence. That's why he says, let us come before his presence. When we are in the church worshiping him, we are in his presence. God is in their presence and we are in his presence. You may tell me, but we are in the presence of God all the time. Yes, that's true. But now, our focus is only on God. We are not distracted. Like maybe we live in household together, but everyone is distracted. Then maybe one of the parents say to one of the children, I need to have a talk with you. So when they meet together, then the child feels he is in the presence of his father or his mother. In the same way, when we come here, we are not distracted with anything, we are in the presence of God. There should be a true connection between God and His people in worship. Many communicate, but few connect. We need to connect, not only to communicate. St. Ambrose Commenting on, let us shout joyfully to him with psalms, he says, Psalms denote the combination of will and action in good works. Because the word implies the use of an instrument as well as of a voice. Psalm means a song. And when, or a psalter, when actually we use the word psalm, this means we are singing while we are playing on instrument. So singing is our will, because my will, I open my mouth and sing to the Lord. And playing on instrument is an action. That's why St. Ambrose said, Psalms is a combination of the will and action in good words. And according to the Septuagint and Coptic translation, verse 2 comes as, Let us hasten to reach his face by confession and shout joyfully to him with songs. Udkhulu amamahu bil-i'atraf waratilu lahu bil-tasabih. Let us hasten to reach his face by confession and shout joyfully to him with songs. So, confession means what? To confess his goodness. That's why confession is synonymous to thanksgiving. When we confess his 
goodness, his mercy, his love toward us, that's thanksgiving. Also, when we confess our unworthiness before God, who is full of love and full of kindness, that's why we must be filled with gratitude to God for his mercy in granting us forgiveness and restoration, although we are unworthy. So by confession, maybe it's either confession of God's might and goodness or confession of our weakness and sin. So it is a confession of praise, praising God or confession of grief and mourning over my sins or both. Verse 3. From verse 3, as I told you, he gave reasons why we should worship God. For the Lord is the great God and the great King above all gods. So, the Psalms provide some reasons why God should be praised by us. The first reason, because our Lord is the great God, far above all other gods, if there are any other gods. And he is the great king, far higher than all other kings, who are sometimes called gods. Because these gods are mere idols, gods in name, but not in reality. So thanks and praise are due to God because of his greatness. As we read in Psalm 77, who is so great a God as our God? And Psalm 145, his greatness is unsearchable. He is the great king above all gods. This doesn't mean that God is a great ruler of all other gods as if other gods really exist. But the great king above all gods mean he is king far above all that were worshipped by people as gods. Because as the psalmist said, all the gods of the nation are demons. Whoever or whatever is worshipped as God, we find the true God is supreme over all things, above the imaginary gods of the heathen, of the Gentiles, non-believers. God occupied the throne, and all others must be beneath him and under his dominion. Second reason why we should worship God with thanksgiving, verse 4, in his hand are the deep places of the earth and the heights of the hills are also his. So the second reason why we should worship God, because God's power is supreme throughout the entire world, whether as to its length, breadth, or height. Therefore, all who inhabit the earth are subject to him and owe him the sacrifice of praise. We are living here on earth, so we should be grateful to God who is holding earth. In his hand 
means in his power. In his hand are the deep places of the earth, in his power. The depth of the earth which cannot be explored by man are in the hand of God, under his control. So, one way God's greatness is illustrated is by his mastery over creation. God possesses all things that can be claimed by no other being. His right over them is absolute because he is the true king. Though false gods are worshipped in special places, but he alone is Lord everywhere. Not only the depth of the earth, but the heights of the hills are his too. Not only does the whole length and breadth of the land belong to him, but even up to the top of the highest mountains are subject to him. The high mountain tops upon which man cannot set his foot are under his control. Metaphorically speaking, some scholars say, the depth of the earth means the lowliest of the children of men. These are the deep places of the earth. So even these lowly people are not beneath his knowledge. They are under his knowledge. And the greatest among people who are like heights of the hills are not above his control. They are under his control. So whatever strength is in any creature, weak or might, it's derived from God and employed for him. The third reason in verse 5, the sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Because our Lord is the true God, not only he is the Lord of the land, but also of the sea, because he is the creator of the sea. The oceans and the seas of this world belong to God. He made them. Whatever nation may make claim on the seas, this belong to this country or whatever. But the psalmist made a specific declaration that the sea is God's. God made it and all creatures in the sea. He sets the boundaries of the sea, its waves, and restrains its raging at his pleasure. It's amazing when you stand at an ocean and you see how the water stops at certain place. How it doesn't flood the whole land. In Psalm 148, we say, He set a boundary for the sea that cannot trespass. It's amazing. People who derive so many benefit from the sea should also thank and praise God who gave it to them. Besides the obvious interpretation concerning the wonder of creation, the sea, St. Augustine says that the sea denotes the Gentile nation because the sea is salty water. Rivers usually referred like the apostles, the servant of Christ. Seas 
refer to the non-believers. It's salt water, storm, hurricanes. So St. Augustine says the seas here are the Gentile nations, the non-believers. Tossed about in the bitterness of heathendom, whom the Jews in their spiritual pride refuse to believe that that Gentiles are God's children. But here in this psalm we can see how God made the sea. God created the unbelievers and he is taking care of them. They are under his control. St. Augustine says, Who is he whom the sea obeys? It is he who the sea is his, and all things were made through him. Let us then, like the winds and the sea, obey the Creator. The sea gave ear to Christ, and you don't. The wind calmed down, and you don't. What I am saying is that all this is nothing more than a lack of desire to obey the word of Christ. By one word, the Lord was able to calm down the storm. So the sea, the storm, the wind obeyed God. But we don't. Why? Because there is lack of desire to obey the word of Christ. Don't let the waves disturb your heart. The waves of passions, the waves of sin. Don't let the waves disturb your heart. The fourth reason we find it in verse 6. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. So what's the fourth reason? Because the same Lord who created earth and sea also created us men. So we need to worship him. Although we are daily offending our Creator by our sins. That's why he is saying, come, let's worship and bow down and weep before God, regretting and lamenting our ingratitude and our sins. He is our Maker, our Creator, and therefore our Lord by every title. He is our Lord to whom we owe absolute utter obedience. And he said in, in verse 6 again, O come! So there is also a sweet sense of emphasis in these words. He repeated O come three times. And the word come is not merely calling attention to a subject, but it is an exhortation to approach, to enter, to engage in, in worshiping God. So there is a gentle plea here exhorting the reader to do what is right before God, which is also good for them. So when we worship him, it is right before God, but also it is good for us. The outward and visible worship of the body is required for man, but also the inward and the spiritual worship of the soul is required. Some commentator who take the psalm as having a special reference to our Lord in nativity see here a command to worship him in the manger in verse 7. He says, For he is our God, and we are the people of his bash, 
and the shape of his hand. Today, if you will hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. Because he mentioned the pastor, the sheep of his hand, as if we go like, like how the sheep worshipped him in the manger. So we need to command him in the manger, in his nativity, in his incarnation. For he is our God. That is the fifth and the last reason. In verse 7. Because the Lord not only made us, not just creator, but he is also our own God, brought into the closest personal relationship with us. So there is a personal relationship. He is our God and we are his flock. There has to be special connection, special relationship. We are led by him, tended by him as a shepherd tend his flock, fed by him, gathered by him. St. Augustine tells us that we are hereby taught that we, even as people, are sheep in respect to God, needing him as a shepherd and only to be satisfied with his green pastures. We are not unreasoning sheep to be driven with a staff, but we are rational flock. We are guided with God's own hands, the very hands of God which made us and are so loving and ever attentive and watchful to prevent any harm that may come from negligence, ignorance, or malice of those inferior shepherds who are the inferior shepherds, us, the clergy, to whom he commits in a measure the task of tending his flock. Even if we, as shepherd, steward of God, were negligent or ignorant of the needs of the flock, but God's a true shepherd. He tends his flock and feeds them and takes them into green pastures. He is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you will hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Today refers to the present time, not to the 24-hour today. Today is an alarming call, implying that the time is come for a significant vital decision. You cannot guarantee your life until tomorrow. So today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. His voice is calling you, commanding you, inviting you, encouraging you. So this word of warning is important enough to be referenced three times in the book of Hebrews. St. Paul referenced this verse today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. He referenced it three times. So God is crying to his people, will they hear him or will they de delay? It is benefiting and also it is befitting to listen to his voice and to obey him when he calls us to repentance and to return back to him. So the commands of God should be obeyed at once. If God speaks, we need to obey him. The purpose of repentance should be executed immediately. When God calls us to repent, we need to respond immediately. 
Because if we say, I am going to repent in the future, this is not obedience. In verse 8 he said, don't harden your heart as in the rebellion, as in the day of trial in the wilderness. When your fathers tested me, they tried me though they saw my work. So what is the rebellion and the day of trial? When people rebelled against God at Mariba, we need to read this story in the book of Numbers, chapter 20, from verse 1 to verse 13. But more generally, it is the rebellion of Israel, their refusal to trust in God and to enter the promised land during Exodus. God did not accept their unbelief and condemned that this generation of unbelief to die in the wilderness. And all the people who came out of Egypt, all of them died in the wilderness, except two persons only entered the promised land. So the appeal here, don't harden your heart, which means there is some aspect of the will involved when it comes to the hardness of our heart. By our own will, we choose to harden our heart. So the psalmist here is exhorting us to praise God, not by our mouth, but our works also. And what is the most acceptable sacrifice we can offer to God? It is a sacrifice of obedience to his command. Because I deny my will and submit to his will. As we read in 1 Samuel chapter 15, 22, Had the Lord as great delight in burnt offering and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. How our will is involved in hardening of the heart? St. Augustine answered this. God hardens by deserting, by not helping. So when God stands away from us, this in itself will result in hardening of our heart. I think he can do, God can do in his secret dispensation, but not by way of injustice. So when God actually stays away and don't intervene, don't help, so our heart are hardened, not because that God is unjust or unfair to us, but God usually uses this to lead us to repentance. God is said to harden their heart justly when he does not, by his grace, soften the reprobate. What about man? Man hardens his own heart when he resists the voice and the inspiration of God. As St. Stephen rebuked, the Jewish people and he told them you always resist the Holy Spirit and by passing pleasure of sin also when we show delight in the passing pleasure of sin our heart is uh, hardened as we read in St. Paul the deceitfulness of sin St. Paul said lest any of you be hardened 
by the deceitfulness of sin, which induces the person to, to resist God and to close the ears of his conscience against God. What about, what does it mean when your father tested me? How can we test God? Test God when our faith in him is shaken. Can God do this for me? That's testing God. We test God by our unbelief. Israel saw the work of God, how God split the Red Sea in front of them. Yet, they did not trust him at Mariba or in the wilderness in general. They had a proof of God's omnipotence. He drowned Pharaoh and all his army in the Red Sea. They saw things done by God, which can only be done by the true, divine, omnipotent God. But they questioned whether they might take his word and to go to the promised land. They said, no, we cannot enter the promised land and insisted upon further security. What are the guarantees before they go forward to Canaan and they send spies? Even after sending the spies, they were discouraged by the spies and they protested against the sufficiency of divine power and promise and wanted to return to Egypt. They said no. We cannot enter the promised land. Let's go back to Egypt. So we are warned not to do the same. Especially though they saw my work. They saw his work. Means God gives us reason to trust him. Though they had just had proof of God's power and goodwill in Exodus from Egypt. But it had not taught them to trust God. To ignore those reasons, to ignore his works, is to provoke and to test God. God offered the generation that came out of Egypt the opportunity to enter into the promised land by faith. But because of their unbelief, they remained in the wilderness 40 years. They rejected God's offer and grieved him for 40 years in the wilderness. He was grieved with them 40 years. How patient God is with us sinners. With them even seeing was not believing. Tomorrow in the gospel, you will hear the Lord said to Thomas, Blessed are those who believe without seeing. But for these people, they saw and did not believe. Thomas said, if I see, I will believe. But the children of Israel, they saw and they did not believe. So for them, seeing was not believing because they hardened their heart. So they had seen what Pharaoh got by hardening his heart, who was drowned, but they did not change. It was evidence that they went astray in their hearts away from humble confidence in God as creator and redeemer. That's why in verse 10, for 40 years, I was grieved, God is saying, with that generation. They grieved him 40 years. God said, 
It is a people who go astray in their hearts and they do not know my ways. So I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest. St. Augustine explained when God said I was grieved of God's continual presence in signs and miracles. He did many miracles and because they did not believe him, did not trust him, he was grieved. St. Paul, when he quoted this verse, he added the word always in Hebrew chapter 3 verse 10. It's taken from the Septuagint, which implies they not only had sinned, but they continued to sin. That's why he added the word always here always about their hardening of their heart. They did not sin merely through weakness, ignorance or mistake, but voluntarily, with their whole heart, they sinned willingly and willfully. Pope Shenouda used to say the difference between Peter and Judas. Peter's sin was out of weakness. But Judas' sin was out of betrayal, willingly and willfully. So God said about this generation, I was grieved with that generation. Which generation? It is the 60,000 person who came out of Egypt. And this applies to all living men, all living men at any time, while it's called today, who reject God. Who don't believe in him. And the cause of God's anger was the ingratitude, lack of thankfulness of the children of Israel for his unceasing watch over them. And the word you know when he said, they do not know my ways, they do not know my ways. It's not the intellectual knowledge because he knew the law of God. So the word you know does not here signify acquaintance of God's way, which may be gathered from reading or meditation. They knew the law. But the word know means this knowing which comes from careful keeping of his ways by applying and living his ways, living lives fruitful in good works. I was grieved 40 years, St. Augustine said about the 40 years, the 40 years have the same meaning as the word always. Always they grieved me. For that number 40 indicates the fullness of ages. As if the ages were perfected in this number. Hence our Lord fasted 40 days. 40 days he was tempted in the desert. 40 days he was with his disciples after his resurrection. On the first 40 days, he showed us temptation when he was in the desert. On the latter 40 days, after his resurrection, he showed us consolation. Since beyond the doubt, when we are tempted, we are consoled. So there are 40 days of temptation and 40 days of comfort. So the message here, if we are tempted, we'll be comforted. For his body, that is the church or his body, must needs suffer temptation in this world, will suffer trials in this world, 
But the comfort who said, Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world, it is not absent. For this was, I was grieved with them 40 years, to show such a race of, of men, which always provokes me, even unto the end of the world. So the word 40 years means the always, as St. Paul quoted in Hebrew, they always grieved me, not for 40 years. Because by those 40 years, he means to signify the whole of this world duration. Those who always sin in heart have not known God's way. We can know God's way intellectually, but if we don't apply them, then we don't know his ways. God's way leads to rest. Therefore, those who did not know his ways, they shall not enter my rest. I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. So when we obey God's word, we'll have rest. The rest, in a historical sense, means a promised land, which very few of those who left Egypt saw, only two persons. But Canaan is a symbol of the heavenly rest which is alone the perfect rest and peace. So it's a warning to all of us Christians who are in danger of unbelief or not trusting God, lest we too should fail to reach the rest promised to us to enter the kingdom of God. As we read in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 11, let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. St. Augustine says, it is a terrible warning. We began the psalm with rejoicing, but we end with awful dread. It is a great thing for God to speak. How much greater for him to swear when said, I swore. You should fear a man when he swears, lest he does somewhat on account of his oath against his will. Like Herod, when he swore to give anything to this girl, and ended up giving the head of John the Baptist against his will. How much more should you fear God when he swears, seeing he cannot swear rashly? He chose the act of swearing for a confirmation. And by whom does God swear? By himself. For he has no greater by whom to swear. By himself he confirmed his promises, and by himself he confirmed his threats. I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest. St. Augustine continued and said, let no man say in his heart, his promise is true, but his threat is false. No, as his promise is true, so is his threat sure. You should be equally assured of rest, of happiness, of eternity, of immortality, if you have executed his commandment. But those who do not execute his commandment, they should be sure of destruction, burning of eternal life, damnation with the devil, if these people have despised his command. 
This concludes Psalm 95. Glory be to God forever and ever. Amen.